Hey, Kara, how's it going? Going well. How are you, Matt? I'm well. Uh, we were uh, hanging out with a big group of free marketeers in Antigua, Guatemala. Uh, what was that, like four weeks ago now? Yeah, about a month ago. I'll yeah. say this is the second time we've met and under very, very different circumstances. The first time we were being piled into a van at six in the morning to go hike a volcano. We actually toasted marshmallows in the lava flow. I'm being dramatic, but we sort of toasted marshmallows in a volcano. Yeah, absolutely. There's so, documented proof of this. I'm certain that this conversation will be just as exciting, if not more exciting, than roasting marshmallows over hot lava. Maybe. I mean, healthcare policy can, can sort of, uh, no offense, but it can <laughs> glaze my eyes over sometimes. We'll make it as fun as possible. Okay, so you are... And this, the, the, the impetus of this, it was 6 o'clock in the morning, and we started talking about healthcare policy because we are those dorks that do that sort of thing. And it dawned on me that we don't really talk as much about healthcare policy as we did. We spent the entire years um, from 2008 um, to 2016 mm -hmm. obsessed with healthcare policy and Obamacare and, and all that stuff. And I, I was pretty involved in, in opposing that stuff. But suddenly after Trump failed to repeal Obamacare, it just we just stopped talking about it. And yet all of the problems that we were supposedly solving then have actually gotten worse. Why, why aren't we talking about healthcare? Right, well, we're coming up on the 11th anniversary of Obamacare, which is kind of crazy to think about because up until 2017, like you mentioned, Republicans talked nonstop about repeal and replace. And, you know, we've seen that over the years, healthcare continues to poll as one of the top three issues that Americans are most concerned about, especially the price of healthcare and the access to healthcare. And so we should still be talking about it. Uh, my opinion is that I'm glad we've moved on from the repeal and replace debate since it has been 11 years now and the ACA or Obamacare is the lay of the land. So how do we work within that framework and create a more market-based system that works for everybody? Yeah, and that's uh, my my libertarian viewers, their, their instinct, and frankly, my instinct is like, I, I want to get the government out of healthcare because everything they do, they screw things up and they they make things more expensive and less accessible and they get between me and my doctor and those have always been my instincts, but some, as someone that has worked on Capitol Hill, my pushback against that instinct is, well, that's, that's a great philosophical position, but what are you going to do with the system we have and all of its problems, and what's the, what's the politically feasible way to get back to consumer choice, basically? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where you guys are. You're, you're vice president at FreeOp, Yes, so I serve as Vice President of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, or FreeOp for short, and we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank based out of Austin, Texas. Although most of the work that we do is federal, we're also involved in state and local policy as well. And um, we aim to shape policy that impact Americans who are living below the median income or wealth level in the country. So we have a rule for all of our scholars at FreeUp, which is 
any research that they put out, any policy recommendations that they set forth have to look at how do we expand economic opportunity to those who least have it using the tools of free enterprise and individual liberty, uh, technological innovation, and pluralism. So my job at FreeUp is to help facilitate some of that research, get it into the hands of policymakers, disseminate it to the public, and more broadly think about how do we bring in more young people, more diversity into the free market movement. Yeah, and uh, I, I noticed, I, I was thinking about this, um, that this word equity has popped up everywhere now. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but uh, um, progressives have replaced the word equality with equity, and it, it strikes me that that's a fundamentally important difference. Mm-hmm. And and you guys are focused on equality and equal access and, and equal treatment under the law. I mean, I think that's sort of the classical liberal framework for for our constitutional republic. Is that kind of where you guys come from? Yes, absolutely. And when you think about equality, you also have to think about equal liberty. So uh, our friend Matt Mitchell over at Mercatus Center has been doing a lot of thinking and work around this concept of equal liberty. How do we reclaim the moral high ground? Um, Because all of us would say, and especially the young people who I talk with, they're very concerned with social mobility. They want to make sure that every American, no matter their background, how much money their parents had, their religion, their sexuality, their gender, et cetera, et cetera, has equal access to succeed in this country and has all of the opportunities as everyone else does. And so at FreeUp, we look at how do we uh, look at equality under the law, but also equality of opportunity. So people who may be a little bit more behind, they didn't grow up in a two-parent household. How do we give them more access to equality in that way when you're looking at opportunities? And those solutions typically mean reducing barriers to entry, getting politics out of the way to solutions. Um, It's it's sort of a it's a hopeful thing, but here in Washington, D.C., everything is about politics. And, and it strikes me that um, the Biden administration is, is attempting to pick up where the Obama administration left off in terms of the Affordable Care Act. They um, recently um, overturned the Trump, predictably overturned the Trump administration's position that Obamacare is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And we're apparently we're Um, the Supreme Court is going to revisit the question of the individual mandate. And so everything is up in the air 11 years later. And um, the Biden administration seems to want to sort of continue the Obama, no, I said the Biden administration wants to continue the Obama administration strategy to basically expand populations under a government insurance program from the bottom up with, with, chips and from the top down with with Medicare. Um, And I guess Biden wants to add a so-called public option, which essentially um, makes it impossible for private insurance to compete. Mm -hmm. So what is the, uh, where are we with Obamacare? We were promised lower prices and broader coverage. (laughs) Um, They have covered more people. 
They've covered more people, but if you look at where that coverage comes from, the vast majority of it is Medicaid expansion. So, you know, I'm a little bit different from some of the people that you may talk to who are on the right of center side of the aisle in that I think that a lot of the ideas behind Obamacare were good. You know, it was trying to expand the individual market, which is uh, known as the Obamacare exchanges, which would give people the ability to choose a plan that works best for them and for their families. Um, and right now, we've seen that the individual market has not taken off. And in a lot of ways, Obamacare has really hindered the individual market by dictating what a plan should look like. For example, men and women who are past childbearing age have to pay for pregnancy care. Well, that seems like it might be a good idea because we're trying to share the risk, but in actuality what it does is drives up cost for everybody else in the market. And so it prices young people like me who are healthy out of the market. Another thing that Obamacare did was it said that uh, old people cannot pay more than three times as young people pay for insurance. But that doesn't work either because young young people don't have nearly as many uh, costly chronic conditions. They don't consume as much health care. And so old people, they have more money saved up and they should be paying more uh, for insurance. So it's so dictated what the private insurers on the Obamacare marketplace could provide people that it priced people out of the market. And we've seen that the real coverage gains have been through Medicaid expansion, which is really a single payer, one size fits all system where patients don't have any choice at all. Yeah, my just personally, I, and I, I looked up some of these numbers this morning and I hadn't looked for a while, but personally, I can tell you that my, my health insurance costs over the last four years have gone up like 50%. Mm -hmm. It's insane. And um, if I do end up in the hospital, I will pay an extraordinarily amount more than I would have five or six years ago. So it ain't working for me. And and I see like uh, globally that the you know the sort of the, the global cost of healthcare in the United States has actually increased f from the ten years preceding Obamacare. So in terms of cost control, they've done nothing, and it's probably. Exactly exactly what you're describing. We're, we're mandating all of these benefits and, and we're creating a one-size-fits-all solution to something that is not a one-size-fits-all problem. Right. And when we think about the cost that we pay, it's not just what you and I are paying out of our pockets. If you look at the U.S. versus other countries, the U.S. government actually pays more per capita for health care than any other industrialized nation in the world. And so when people say, oh, we can't afford Medicare for all, well, that's not necessarily true because we're already paying more per person on the government's dime than any other country. Um, but that's another conversation we can get into. Yeah. Like, so the, like when I was doing healthcare on Capitol Hill, which was ancient times, um, I worked on the Hill um, during the so-called Republican Revolution of 1994. Um, don't tell me that you weren't born yet because it'll make me sad. But the <laughs> I was one year old, yeah, two years old. Thank you for that. Um, you guys think that's funny, huh? I, I was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can remember um, And we're having the same argument back then. At, and because uh, the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton, wanted to um, radically expand government control of health care 
And I remember Republicans struggling to figure out what their response was. And they, they, didn't, they didn't have a market response. They knew they were against what Hillary Clinton wanted, uh, primarily because grassroots Americans were against what Hillary Clinton wanted. But they didn't know what they were for. And I was like a, a healthcare staffer called on something called the Republican Leaders Healthcare Task Force. And I got to sort of watch Republicans try to figure out what they stood for. And they, they had no idea. And we would bring in like uh, pro-market, pro-medical savings account guys to talk to them. And I'd watch staffers afterwards, uh, after they were gone, just sort of make fun of them. And, and these staffers, I won't name names, but they all became like lobbyists for, for the hospital association and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So there was never like, um, there was never like a pro-market alternative even back then. And so I wasn't surprised when Republicans couldn't uh, repeal and replace Obamacare because it was never at all clear what they were, what they were actually trying to do. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you actually take some of FreeOps ideas and inject them into this debate and, and actually get people to imagine a health insurance marketplace? Well, our whole philosophy on policy, whether it's healthcare or housing, education, justice reform, energy, when we set forth policy recommendations, we want to make sure that they are viable. And what does viable mean? It means that they can reasonably get 60 votes in the Senate. And in order to do that, unless you're waiting for Republicans to have 60 people in the Senate, which is not going to happen for a very long time, and also have the House, and also have the presidency to sign it into law, then you're going to be waiting a long time. So you're going to have to get some Democrats on board. And how we look at policy at FreeOp is we try to achieve what are typically thought of as progressive outcomes um, by using free markets. And so when you think of the concept of universal health coverage, if you were to say that, kind of the first thing that would pop into your head is that's a Democrat talking point. Mm -hmm. But if you look at any other sector of our economy, for example, for every American to have access to an affordable smartphone or a television or a car, we wouldn't say that the federal government needs to be more involved in the smartphone market and dictate prices there so that people can have access and we can achieve universal smartphones for everybody. So why should it be any different for these really important policy questions that we're asking today and these challenges that we face in America on the healthcare front, housing, education, et cetera? Yeah. So when you say universal, um, are you talking about universal access? Are you talking about universal coverage? Are you because those are, those are, of course, different things. Are we talking about health insurance or access to health care? How do you guys see that? Well, I would say it's universal access to coverage. But if you make a lot of the um, changes that we're talking about, it makes insurance more appetizing to buy because it's cheaper. You get more benefits. You get more choice in what kind of doctors you see, in what kind of benefits your plan includes. And so when people have access to affordable coverage that suits their individual needs and the needs for their family, then they're more likely to take that coverage up. And so hopefully, in the end goal, we can get to universal coverage, period. So the remind me of the history of this. I, I believe the Republicans uh, rolled back 
the tax part of the individual mandate. Mm -hmm. And so now if you don't have coverage, you don't have to pay a tax fine. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So what they did in the Tax Cut Act of 2018, I believe it was, is they zeroed out the individual mandate. They didn't nix it and get rid of it completely, but they said if you don't have health insurance, then you are not going to be fined by the federal government to make that choice. But that since that was done, um, you know, it can be put back into law. Since it was just zeroed out, you know, any yeah. Congress in the future can say, oh, we want to hike that back up and say you have to pay $7,000 a year. I assume they did that uh, through budget reconciliation or something so they couldn't repeal it because that would have been not a, not a legal thing under that. Mm -hmm. Same debate today. They're, they're, um, in order to pass things with 50 plus one, they're limited somewhat limited on what they can do. But yeah. uh, so do you guys, um, do you guys support the individual mandate? I don't believe, I don't think that we would support an individual mandate. You know, if you have a system that works for everybody, mm -hmm. there's not going to be a need for an individual mandate to force people to buy that insurance. Because you, um, the, your, your vision for um, insurance I assume doesn't include mandated benefits. So it does not. I don't have to buy pregnancy health care, which I don't need that much. <laughs> um, but more importantly, young people don't have to buy these big Cadillac plans because they absolutely don't need them. Is that is that part of universal access? Yes, okay. exactly. And another part of that conversation is right now, you know, in America, 115 million people are already in a single-payer form of health care, whether it's traditional fee-for-service Medicare, or it's the Medicaid program or CHIP program, um, or people who have employer-sponsored insurance. That's 160 million Americans. Most of them only have one or two choices from their employer, and they have to take up whatever coverage their employer offers them. And so, really, when you're talking about choice, we don't have a free market system in the U.S. when it comes to health care. How do we expand patient choice so that we are choosing plans that work for us? And uh, at FreeUp, one of the things that we propose is building upon what the Trump administration started with the health reimbursement arrangements. So this was the HRA rule that they worked on in 2019, which allows employers to uh, give their employees a set amount of money and they can go on the individual market and choose a plan that works for them versus the employer dictating what kind of coverage they get. Because right now, uh, you don't have to pay any taxes on your health care benefits if you get them through an employer, which means that the employer is going to try and take advantage of that as much as they can and offer the most comprehensive benefits when, again, someone like me who's younger, more healthy, doesn't need all of those bells and whistles on the Cadillac plan, I would much rather be given a pot of money into a savings account that I can go and purchase a more bare bones plan and then pocket the rest of that money and have that go toward my wages. Was that, um, I missed all this, and this is why we're talking about healthcare, but was that an administrative change 
that allowed for them to do that? That's a regulatory mm -hmm. change as opposed to a legislative change. It was a regulatory change, which means that it can be changed in the future. But we have been working with members of Congress in both the House and the Senate uh, on a bill called the Fair Care Act, which codifies this HRA rule into legislative language. So it will be much harder to reverse in the future. It seems like no matter how you slice it, you have um, some people in Congress uh, primarily populating the Democratic Party that are looking to expand uh, Medicare for all and 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 basically making the system more one size fits all versus those that that um, want to sort of cut out the middleman, whether it's your employer or whoever it is that's sort of dictating your choices and, and forcing you to buy things you don't need. Um, is there um, is that change simple? And, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to ask is, do we need a big healthcare overhaul to get to patient choice? Or is there a simple sort of opt-out thing that, that is less scary to people who are so tired mm -hmm. of people monkeying with their access to healthcare? Um, do we have to do a big thing? Do we have to get 60 votes for a big thing? I don't know the answer to this, but I, I, I've always been looking for those like easy things that, that are really based on, on individual choice that sort of let people opt out. Yeah. Well, I think the problem is that a lot of conservatives latch on to policy ideas that are good policy ideas, but they think of them as kind of the panacea for how to solve healthcare. So, for example, price transparency is one of those. Um, the Trump administration and also the Senate Help Committee did a lot of great things in the past several years on increasing the transparency around uh, healthcare services and the prices that patients pay for them. But the problem with that is that 80%, if you have an employer-sponsored plan, 80% of your healthcare costs are paid by your employer and through the insurer still, and you're only paying about 20%. And so once you hit your deductible every year, it doesn't matter. You don't have to price shop anymore for yeah. the most cost-convenient uh, service. And so we have to tackle price transparency. We have to tackle things like uh, the actual prices that providers cost. We've seen that uh, large hospital systems have been price gouging patients, have been buying up independent doctors' practices, have been merging with other hospital systems. And in a lot of urban areas, they're the only game in town, so they can charge whatever they want. You have to tackle prescription drug cost, the government monopoly system with the patents. Uh, they really restrict innovation. You have to look at, like we've talked about, patient choice. So you do have to, I would say, we don't have to overhaul the system as in starting from scratch, tearing it all down and building up something else like Medicare for all single payer. But we do have to attack it on several different pr fronts because there are a lot of problems that play into why healthcare is so expensive today. Which of those, um, but, but those, all of the things you're talking about could be done piecemeal, um, standalone, no? The problem there is that we, there's such outsized lobbying power in the U.S. 
which, you know, in some ways is a good thing because it's our First Amendment right to be able to lobby the government. But these special interest groups, the pharmaceutical companies, the large hospital systems, they have such great power in Washington on Capitol Hill that it's really hard to do things piecemeal. And so that's why we take the approach of doing more of a wide ranging reform where it's in one bill. So, you know, the the hospitals may not like that you are taking measures to bring down their prices, but they are going to like that they're going to get more consumers and more patients because you're making healthcare cheaper for everyone to purchase. So they'll have more people to serve. And so you kind of have to play the levers in that way, which is why we have found it's easier both to do large-ranging reform. Mm -hmm. And it's also, interestingly, easier to work with members who don't sit on committees of jurisdiction over healthcare because they get hit over and over by the lobbyist. If you're on Ways and Means or if you're on Energy and Commerce, you're listening to what the pharma guy puts in your ear day in and day out, and you are going to be less amenable to some of these arguments. Yeah, and I call it the health insurance industrial complex or something like that. Um, And it's the hospital association, it's the pharmaceutical companies, Mm -hmm. it's the insurance companies. And that that was, those were the same interests that had the ears of Republicans back in 1992, 93, 94. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a pretty big lobby, right? Um, So what's the what's what's the countervailing political force that would actually allow us to to get this done? You have to think of what the alternative is. And this is the biggest argument, I think, against Medicare for all, besides the moral argument of Medicare for all would be single payer and you have no patient choice in what your plan is. But the other biggest argument is that the lobby power is so large that if you think you're going to reduce healthcare prices, by instating a single-payer system, those hospital systems are not going to take the prices that the government sets. Because Medicare right now, they pay one-third and sometimes even less than what commercial private insurers pay them. And so they have, you know, when you're talking about uh, Medicaid as well. There, a lot of doctors don't take Medicaid patients. Because and Medicaid's of that. even lower reimbursement than Medicare, right? Exactly. Yeah. And something else that I should note is that Bernie Sanders, when he says that he wants Medicare for all, forty percent of seniors who are in the Medicare program are actually in a separate program called Medicare Advantage, which is where they get to choose among a variety of private plans. It's very different from the traditional fee-for-service government-run Medicare, and that's growing year after year. And I think in 10 years or so, the majority of seniors on Medicare are actually going to have private insurance. And so when Bernie Sanders says that he wants this for everybody, he actually wants to take away Medicare as it is for 40% of the people who get that benefit. So I want to get into that because you guys are big on Medicare Advantage, and I want to understand that better. But just so people understand, the the, the drivers for healthcare costs are Medicaid, Medicare, Veterans Healthcare. Um, I guess chips would be the would be the four primary ones. And then also the tax break for employer-sponsored coverage, which yeah. is uh, one of the, if not the biggest tax break in the tax code. 
the and the net effect, at least for those those healthcare programs, is to drive up the sort of cross subsidy for like if you have private insurance or if, or God help you if you just walk into the system um, without insurance, you you pay some extraordinarily high price that has nothing to do with the market price because mm-hmm. the, the, the cross subsidies, if a hospital is only getting 20% from Medicaid, 30% from Medicare, they have to shift costs somewhere else. Yeah. So that's, the, the government system is already the, the primary driver of higher healthcare costs. Absolutely. And how we do it right now is that we subsidize all of the wrong people. And so people like Warren Buffett or Mitt Romney or Hillary Clinton, who have three very millions, bad people, if not hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, they all have government subsidized health insurance, whether it's through Medicare or uh, the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program. And I don't see how that is fair for the um, less fortunate Americans who are really struggling to afford insurance, people who are, they make too much money to be considered in the Medicaid program, but they are hardworking and they make too much money or they don't make, make too much money in order to get subsidies on the individual market. They're priced out. They don't have any choice. And so we really need to think about how we subsidize healthcare, how the government subsidizes healthcare, and recalibrate that so that we are directing those funds in a more efficient manner to the very sick, the very vulnerable, disabled, people with chronic conditions, people with pre-existing conditions. And the, the solution for free op is, you, you call this, and it, it freaks me out a little bit, universal Medicare Advantage. <laughs> How is that different from universal Medicare for all? So, like I'm, I, I'm freaking out here. <laughs> don't freak out. So, Medicare Advantage, like I was saying before, is the private alternative to Medicare. So, at FreeUp, what we would like to do is see more people purchasing insurance on the individual market. And so, that would be kind of the Medicare Advantage part. And then the backstop in Medicare today is uh, the fee-for-service program, which actually provides less benefits at higher cost, and they have poorer health outcomes than people who are in Medicare Advantage. But it's kind of the backstop. If you don't choose one of these private plans, you are just in the government plan. So what are we going to do to help reform the individual market to help it work better? We want to, like I said, expand these HRAs so that employees get to go choose their own plan. Uh, But we also want to do things within the individual market to make it cheaper. Like I said, uh, kind of widening these age bands from three to one to five to one. So if you're an old person, you pay uh, five times as much as a young person, up to five times as much. And then the thing that we want to serve as our backstop for prices is to help curb the lobbying power of these really powerful hospital systems by saying, hey, if you want to remain a monopoly in an urban area, then you can do that. But that means that you are going to have to accept Medicare Advantage rates, which are market-based rates for all commercial employers for all commercial insurers, which include employer-sponsored plans. 
And so this is a way to give these hospital systems a choice. And if you look at something, I'll get a little bit wonky for a second here. There's something called the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, the HHI Index, which basically measures market concentration. And if your business is above a certain threshold on the HHI Index, then the Federal Trade Commission is legally allowed to come in and break you up as a monopoly. So we don't want to do that. We want to give them a choice. You know, you can either stay a monopoly, but you have this backstop of Medicare Advantage rates for commercial payers, or you can divest your market power, restore competition within the city, and uh, go about your way. So you are a legit healthcare wonk. I am trying to be. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, uh, you, you started off in nursing school, and then you switched to uh, public health. Uh, give us a little bit of your your history here. Yeah, so I've always had an interest in healthcare. My mom works in the lab at a hospital, so she typically works in the blood bank, but these days she's been running a lot of COVID tests. And I kind of grew up in a family that I like to call kitchen table conservatives. We weren't necessarily political, but we were just a middle-class family that was interested in issues that affected our community. And so I always had an interest in healthcare, always had an interest in politics, decided when I went to school that I was going to study nursing and quickly found out that the clinical setting is not really for me. I'm more big picture thinker. And so I just kind of fell into healthcare policy as the place where politics and healthcare meet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about the, the concentration of, of hospitals and, and Freeop had written an interesting piece about how COVID has centralized a lot of things. I mean, mm -hmm. the way we get our groceries and then the way we get our goods and services, but, but also uh, centralized the hospital system. Talk about that, because it's, it's like, it's contrary to all of the rhetoric we hear about, about helping people during COVID. Like, mm -hmm. it, like we've, we've centralized everything. Yeah, it's interesting to see, because at the beginning of the pandemic, we really weren't sure how many ICU beds we would need to have and how much room we would have to have for COVID patients. And we didn't want people coming into the hospitals that didn't really need to be there. And so there were a lot of regulations coming out that said that hospitals could no longer uh, provide these ancillary services. Typically from governors. Typically from governors, yeah. yes, at the state level. And so you've seen this, uh, this pattern over the years, even before COVID hit, of rural hospitals have really been struggling to keep their doors open, which is why in the policy suggestion that I was mentioning earlier uh, for these urban hospitals that are acting as monopolies, that is completely exempt for the rural guys because they need all the help that they can get. Um, and so for the rural hospitals, they really had to make up their cost elsewhere or close their doors. And we've seen that a lot of them have had to close their doors because of this. Yeah, it, it struck me as a, as a classic example of, of sort of, you know, a pretense of thinking you know better than, mm -hmm. than people on the ground, like a, the, the governor of New York we're all picking on Cuomo now, so we might as well just pile on a little bit more. But 
you know, he, he sort of presumed that a hospital in Manhattan is the same as a hospital in Buffalo. Yeah. And the net result was, was really damaging to hospitals that weren't in, in urban areas. They, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't earn patient revenue doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it was devastating. Right. And in more populous places, like in New York City, it may make more sense to reserve more beds for COVID patients. But in rural Mississippi, it doesn't make as much sense. Yeah. By the way, that's Biden circling over us <laughs> right now. Um, hopefully he's listening. But the uh, the other thing, and it's this, like, I've, I've been obsessed about, about COVID lockdowns and, mm-hmm. and how they've, they've been counterproductive. And, and one of the things that happened um, is, is the sort of uh, corruption of, of, of the healthcare system. And one was so sort of bankrupting hospitals, but, but the other was uh, people with other ailments, mm-hmm. say heart disease, number one killer in the world, cancer, number two killer in the world. Um, people like that were fo- foregoing treatment and some governors were even classifying this as, um, as what's the word? Um, I can't think of the word. Not voluntary. See, this is the sort of things we should cut out of the show. Um, discretionary. What's the word in healthcare for discretionary treatment? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of it either. No, I can't think of it. Logan, help me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's it's optional. It's oh, uh, elected. Elective. <laughs> See, I, I need elective uh, brain surgery or something. <laughs> but all of these all of these things were arbitrarily deemed elective, mm-hmm. including um, you know go, foregoing uh, cancer treatments. That like, whenever you do something like that, you you potentially create um, what was a manageable problem turns into a deadly problem, and it was just that arrogance of uh, politicians thinking that the governor of Texas thinking that he knew better than that administrators and patients and doctors on the ground, each of whom had a different situation. Yeah, and that's really important to point out because when they halted elective procedures, it wasn't just, you know, somebody going in for a surgery that they could get five years from now and didn't necessarily need at this time. It was the things that you mentioned, like cancer screenings, mammograms. People were scared witless to go to the hospital for these things that they really needed. We saw a lot of flu shots were down. And so when you shut down the economy, you don't just shut down businesses and retail. Actually, the healthcare sector, a lot of that economy was shut down as well, and we won't see the opportunity cost of that until several years later. The impact of those foregone screenings will actually have on people's health. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's going to be hard to measure the the unseen costs of all that, but it it's something that I worry a lot about. Mm-hmm. So talk about let's talk about free up a little bit more because I like the framing and at, at free the people we we like to think a lot about um, I call them transpartisan mm-hmm. opportunities where you have Thomas Massey and Tulsi Gabbard agreeing to work on something even though they they supposedly come from from very very different perspectives on the political spectrum um, and there's a little bit of that at free up how do you guys choose the issues that you work on well. 
I really love that word transpartisan because it's very different from bipartisan. In Washington, you know, you live here and you live and breathe this stuff. You know that bipartisan often means just splitting the difference between politicians and large corporations. And a lot of times bipartisanship equals crony capitalism. Right. But when you're transpartisan, kind of like how I was describing earlier, free ops approach where we use markets to achieve what are thought of as progressive policy outcomes, if you can show how your how your approach to an issue can reach the same conclusion as what they're trying to do, then hopefully you can get some more people on board. And I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but I am talking about Tulsi Gabbard or, you know, uh, Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin. Yeah. And so that's kind of our approach is to be transpartisan. So it's really great to hear that you guys take the same. And it um, it, it sort of blows up this idea um, and I'm, I've never quite bought the left versus right thing. It strikes mm-hmm. me more as authoritarian top-down versus decentralized choice-based mm-hmm. solutions to things. And that that can sort of cross partisan lines sometimes. I mean, but you still have this, this iron, um, you know, there's a reason why Washington, D.C. produces crony capitalist outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and those people are a lot more powerful than you and I are and they have all those interests. So the, the alternative has to be getting people to care about this stuff. And when you're talking with everyday Americans who aren't in all of the political discussions like we are, you know, they, right or left, you mention a few things, and these are the three points that I think that we should coalesce around in our movement, which are being anti-crony capitalism, cracking down on monopoly power specifically where the government has instated that monopoly. And then the third, which is a little bit different from what we're talking about today, is the whole cancel culture. You know, I talk with a lot of young people and uh, they are not really on board with um, with the entire cancel culture. They believe in redemption and forgiveness and certainly want to hold people accountable and don't want to say things that are not politically correct just to do so. But they are more amenable to having an open discussion and keeping the Overton window of acceptable ideas as big as possible. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that that Zoomers are sort of the counter-revolution um, because it strikes me that without sort of that tolerance and empathy that is free speech, um, I'm not sure how we fix anything. Yeah, absolutely. people are just afraid to speak. Right. And when you look at the other side as your enemy versus somebody who you want to work together and convince, then, you know, that's just not a good game plan for getting people on board with your ideas anyways. Yeah, and, I, and that's one of, another one of those issues um, that I think sort of crosses the traditional left-right thing. Um, guys like Glenn Greenwald, who I'm sure I disagree with on some pretty important things, has been against sort of the authoritarian rise of, of cancel culture and, and intolerance. And, and to me, there's common ground there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what is the other big thing that FreeUp is doing. Like, um, you're gonna fix the healthcare system, 
And, and are you giving us a time stamp on this? Are you going to get this done in this Congress? Well, hopefully in this Congress, you know, we actually see a little bit more opportunity than under the last Congress, if you can believe it or not. Uh, McConnell, when he was running the Senate, was not going to bring anything to the floor that would divide the Republican caucus. And we see the Fair Care Act, which is the health care reform bill that has been written based on free ops health care reform plan called Medicare Advantage for All. Uh, it is both in the House from Bruce Westerman out of Arkansas, has a handful of co-sponsors, and then also has been introduced in the Senate from Senator Mike Braun of Indiana. We see this as a way to help get some Democrats on board with these market-based ideas to expand coverage. These are kind of the two things that we see. In order to have success, to get 60 votes in the Senate, you have to both expand the number of people that have health insurance. And this was the problem we saw in 2017 when Republicans were trying to repeal and replace is that the Congressional Budget Office, uh, they scored every single one of those replacement plans as covering fewer people. And we can have good faith discussions on whether or not the CBO models were accurate or not. But the fact of the matter is Democrats aren't going to vote for anything that the CBO scores as having less people covered. And then the second thing is reduce health care costs. And we've talked a little bit about how to do that, recalibrating subsidies so that we're not subsidizing the rich and the people who actually have the means to purchase insurance, but we are redirecting those to people who uh, actually are vulnerable and doing that through something that we call reinsurance, which is kind of a back-end way to do a risk pool. So uh, in the individual market, if you are someone who's very sick and consumes a lot of health care, then the insurer puts you in a reinsurance program where federal subsidies go directly to you. And some conservatives are really uncomfortable with this idea because they don't want to put more government control put more money towards health care, but in order to actually bring down the cost of care, we sometimes have to put more money towards the people who need it most so that we can subsidize everyone else less on the whole. And so looking at the Fair Care Act, uh, that is what we are hoping for, uh, for 2021 and hoping to get more co-sponsors on those bills once they are reintroduced in the new Congress. As far as what else FreeOp is doing, we have been taking a hard look at uh, COVID lockdowns and kind of the the impact that they have had, not only on the Speaking economy, of subsidizing the rich. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's the people who have full-time jobs who can work at home from their sofa who aren't hurting right now. It's the people who have blue-collar jobs who need to be out in the workforce, and they are the ones that are most impacted by these lockdowns. So we are looking in the future to put together, in the very near future, to put together lessons learned. What would we do differently if a new pandemic hit us in the next several years? I've talked a lot about this, and, and I, I read a piece uh, by your founder, Avik Roy, um, looking at, as, as best you can, looking at um, mortality data, excess mortality um, from country to country based on, on various paradigms from 
from no lockdowns. I don't think anybody ever had no lockdowns, but like to a light touch, to a very heavy touch. And his conclusion was that there's there's no correlation between lockdowns and improved health. Like it's all over the place based on a thousand different factors. Um, but the one thing we know about lockdowns, um, you mentioned this, but this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, you and I and people that c- work at a computer or in front of a camera or remotely, um, we're the haves in the lockdown economy. And we can afford to have someone else bring our groceries and we can afford to, to wait this thing out. Um, but for most people, um, their job depends on doing stuff actually with their hands. And, and it's this sort of have, have not thing where um, the people that scold me for being anti-lockdown, you know, they're, they're hiding in their house and some poor bastard has to bring them their groceries every time they hit that button. I'm like, what about that guy? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's not a fair system and it's a ridiculous system just from a, a, a an equal treatment kind of perspective. Um, but it, it now looks like um, we did all this collateral damage to no health end. Like we, we didn't, we didn't help. We made things worse. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I am finishing up a master's degree in public health. And so it has been curious to see what I learned before the pandemic on how to tackle mass casualty events like a super virus versus the same professors, what they taught me before doing a complete 180. Um, And I think the reason is because We knew that coronaviruses, you know, the common cold is a coronavirus. We knew that they affect people who are immunocompromised and the elderly. And for young people, especially, and for children, it's much, much less risk, almost no risk at all. And so we learned that in the event of a super virus, you need to protect those who are most vulnerable. And we learned that lockdowns don't work as a blanket statement for the entire population. And and this was the standard two years ago, three years ago? It was. But then when we see when COVID hit the U.S. shores, the federal government pulled out these old playbooks from the 1918 flu. And a flu is very different. A flu is going to uh, affect the elderly, but it's also going to affect the really young. And... Over the course of your lifetime, it actually, you know, there's, it's just more spread out. It's more of an equal opportunity virus, if you will, than a coronavirus is. And so we pulled out these old playbooks that we should have known would not work for a coronavirus. And as my professors in my master's program in public health taught us, they wouldn't have worked. But as soon as the government and the CDC recommended these things and we're pushing lockdowns and recommending them to governors and uh, to cities, we saw that begin to be the norm. And we very quickly learned more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus and who it affects. And we didn't change course in time. We knew by May, you know, this thing, the lockdown started in March of last year, almost a year ago. We knew by May who it affected the most, and yet still the U.S. has one of the most stringent lockdowns in the world, except for maybe Australia and New Zealand right now. And it doesn't make any sense to me. So like I I had a guest on my show, uh, Ivor Cummins, who 
is essentially a health statistician. Um, you know, he's not an epidemiologist, but he um, his argument, and I'll mischaracterize it slightly, but there's there's this whole industry, NGOs, government agencies, um, pharmaceutical companies that um, are making a killing with this big, overwrought, one-size-fits-all response. So it's kind of the COVID industrial complex. There's mm-hmm. an industrial complex for everything um, on my show. But yeah. it's, uh, it's how politics screws everything up because what we needed was a decentralized local response and instead we had this one-size-fits-all response. And it strikes me that the reason your professors changed their tune so quickly is it probably um, their opinions on these subjects probably affect their ability to get research dollars. Absolutely. Which is all government now. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a pretty corrupt system. It's kind of anti-science at its core that, that a political opinion would define what healthcare researchers are thinking so that they can get more research dollars to, to continue to not challenge the status quo. Yeah, exactly. And that was the point you made was so perfect in that the scientific method, you should be questioning everything and not taking anything for granted. And once you get more data, you have to redirect your your policy prescription for whatever the issue is and we haven't been doing that you know we get more data we learn more about the virus and we still have the same policies and people use science or science-based as this kind of virtue signaling when it's really not it's not following the science at all and i saw that you had somebody on a few weeks ago to talk about school reopenings that is the perfect example of where we have not followed the science. Schools should have been open since last fall, once we knew who this virus affected the most, and yet we still see that schools are closed. And so if you're actually following the science and the scientific method, you're going to come to a much different conclusion that what many of my professors and the people who work at the CDC and in the government have been proposing. And just to give you An example, um, I was in a class last August and a professor said, you know, well, Governor Cuomo has really been the poster child for how to do things right during COVID. It's really the model going forward for how we should approach pandemics. And I can't keep my mouth shut, of course. And so I said, by what metric? You know, they've had more deaths per capita. You've had stricter lockdowns. By what metric has the state of New York done better than somewhere like Florida, who has actually followed the science and Governor Ron DeSantis has actually done very well down there in letting counties like Miami-Dade, which is much more populous, to have stricter lockdowns if they want to, but for everyone else to go about their business, you know, shut down bars and large gatherings uh, and promote things that we know work, like hand washing, like social social distancing when you can voluntarily, uh, like wearing masks, which I know is kind of a touchy subject, but that works as well. And it's worked a lot better for people like Ron DeSantis down in Florida than how Governor Cuomo has handled the COVID situation in New York State. I guess uh, I think Senator Rand Paul gave Dr. Fauci an opportunity to walk back a similar statement where he said that Governor Cuomo was the, the gold standard I don't know why we're we're suddenly we as in the press has turned on 
Governor Cuomo um, sort of exposing another obvious mistake that he made when he when he forced nursing homes to take sick patients, and that that's been a real driver in in the death rate in New York. But at least finally we're acknowledging that that was a mistake. Um, I don't know if we'll acknowledge that that the broader premise of of lockdowns, which is give the governor all the power and and they know better. I don't know if we'll learn from that, um, but that's your guys' job at FreeOp. How do we find more of you and FreeOp, and, and where can people go? You can find us at freopp.org, freeop.org, and we are at FreeOp on all social media handles, and you can find me at Kara Lynn Jones, that's L-Y-N-N-E with an E, um, and hope that you'll check out more of what we are writing on the healthcare front. My colleague Ovik Roy is leading this project on lessons learned from COVID. But like I mentioned, we have scholars who look at a various number of cost of living issues, including K through 12 education, higher ed financial services, justice reform, which you guys do a lot of great work on at Free the People. And so we are really trying to make this economy work for all Americans and hope to bring more people into the free market fold. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm-hmm.